Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Kristen Vaughan is Managing Partner of Arescent Ventures, where clean tech innovation meets commercial ambition. An offshoot of Australia's Clean Energy Finance Corporation, Varescent invests in founders, technologies and businesses that help achieve zero emissions and beyond. Kristen believes that there's no need to choose between emissions impact and commercial outcomes. Along with her team at Varescent, Kristen invests from pre-seed all the way to late stage growth companies across four main areas, clean energy, mobility and smart cities, food and agriculture, and the circular economy. Prior to joining the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, Kristen spent more than a decade at top-tier Australian private equity firm Champ Ventures, and prior to that, she was a consultant at leading management consulting firm AT Kearney. Kristen holds a first-class honours degree in chemical engineering from the University of Sydney, and the energy she has for her work is palpable. Kristen, fantastic to see you. You're based in Sydney, getting lots and lots of rain, are you? I am, Catherine, although you might be able to see out the window there, we've actually got a blue sky day at the moment, so it's pretty exciting. It has been a very wet start to the year. (laughs) And so are you a Sydney person, born and bred? I am, yes. No, I grew up in Sydney and have kind of lived around different parts of Sydney. I'm now on the northern beaches and love it. Uh, very outdoors kind of person as well, but I um, but grew up in Sydney and then lived in. Uh, I think I did the normal Australian thing of living overseas for a couple of years, you know, out in and out of London and all around Europe, uh, but most of the rest of the time in Sydney. It seems like the path to venture takes many different forms. How did you join the dots to find yourself in the position that you are now? Uh, yeah, great question. So, um, and it's funny because I think you look back on your career and you feel like you do join the dots, but actually when you're doing it at the time, and it's great when you're interviewing, you can say, oh, yes, that was all very well planned. But actually at the time it was, you know, really doing things that I found really interesting. So I studied chemical engineering at university. I'd really, you know, I'd, I mean, it's so hard, I think, when you're 18 to make those decisions or not even 18 and you have no idea really what careers look like. And you just look at the subjects you enjoyed. So I really enjoyed math, science. I had enjoyed languages and other, you know, more of the humanities as well. But I had come from a a line of engineers. And so that was clearly like an option that that I may not have otherwise considered. Um, So studied chemical engineering. And then then I feel like at the end of that four-year degree, I was just ready to travel and just couldn't keep my head down, worked really hard through uni, through, through school. So I um, so I went overseas for a couple of years and did a few different things, like in the kind of banking market in, in London and did mainly travelled and spent all the money I earned. But when I came back, I thought, look, I want to do something close to engineering. And so I started working at Arnott's and worked in kind of 
product development there and then moved into production management and really enjoyed the, the people there were fantastic, really enjoyed working there, but had always kind of thought, well, I want to, you know, I really enjoyed working in a business, but wanted to understand more about how businesses worked. And so I moved into consulting, into strategy consulting from there. And I did that for a couple of years. Again, really enjoyed it, loved the people, the intellectual stimulation, meeting lots of different businesses and lots of different industries, but ultimately found it a bit frustrating that I'd, they were relatively short engagements that you kind of got to get, just get your head around something and meet people and then move on to the next thing and never had any, you know, feel for what actually happened from then. Um, so, and I got introduced to private equity investing through that. And that was really so kind of where I moved, started moving into that early stage investing. And I, I joined a group called Champ Ventures. Um, so not a venture capital firm, not, um, you know, kind of a slightly odd name for it, but um, early stage uh, private equity. And so we did a lot of growth capital and early and small buyouts there and just loved it. I really loved the work. But then, you know, I had always been, we did a little, I did do one kind of worked on one venture capital deal in that spot in that time. The thing I loved most about the work was working with founders. Like I've always just had such respect for people who've got the guts to go out there and start a business and the kind of conviction around that. So I, um, and, and I had two stints of maternity leave while I was there and it gave me that kind of moment to sit back and go, right, okay, how, what am I actually going to do with the rest of my career? And I had always been really interested in climate and really passionate about it. I think having children kind of gives you that extra layer of kind of responsibility, thinking how do I, you know, what do I do to make the world a better place for them? And so then it was at that point I, I really looked at, well, how do I marry these skills and reached out the CFC, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, announced that they were going to go into early stage investing. And it was just fortuitous timing. I reached out and, and eventually moved across. And that was into venture capital about five years ago. So it was a bit of a transition, you know, into early stage investing more on the kind of private equity end and then, and then moving into venture about five years ago. A long answer to a short question. <laughs> well, it's it's really interesting because it feels like it's quite interest-led that you've been interested in things and sort of sought out opportunities and that you've been prepared to put yourself in situations where at the start you really are not an expert. You know, it, you haven't really kept doubling down on, you know, building expertise in one area. Mm. Is that something that sort of characterised your personality from early on or is that something that's developed over time? It probably isn't something that was I was initially. So I think I, you know, I originally really enjoyed being like at school and at university being really good at something. And I think that was, you know, but it's really, it's really just evolved as I've continued to pursue interests, as you say. And it's really just kind of, and, and it's it's actually something that I think, you know, when I talk to people who come into that early stage investing environment, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable a lot because you're actually the job is so wide and, and all-encompassing and that's fantastic about it, but it also makes means that you always feel a bit uncomfortable because <laughs> you never feel like you're really nailing any particular part. You know, there's always a part that you think, oh, I'm not really doing that particularly well at the moment um, or another part. So I really got to, you know, learn to love the learning and really trying to, and, and actually that it was more the adjustment, I think, of going, well, actually, how do I, how do I get comfortable with being uncomfortable? And then I've got to, yeah, got to really enjoy that. And as you said, you sort of moved into early stage venture sort of five years ago, but now you've sort of gone to the next level building something yeah. completely new. Tell us a bit about what you're doing right now. 
So when I joined the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the biggest green bank in the world, you know, doing fantastic work set up about 10 years ago, that was really all around, you know, how do we stimulate climate tech investing in Australia? There really wasn't, there, there, were, so there was some investment, but not a lot happening in that space. And previously climate had in the early 2000s had developed a bit of a bad reputation where a lot of people made, lost a lot of money in a relatively short space of time. You know, I could see there was a great opportunity there joined the team and really looked at, you know, how do we, how do we really, stim- how do, as I said, really stimulate this ecosystem and really find great deals, show that this is a really investable asset class. And that's, you know, a really core thing that the CFC is set up to do, not only to reduce emissions, but also show the private sector that, that this is doable and you can invest in this space. So that was really what, um, you know, attracted me. So we really, you know, worked hard over that five-year period to really build a a great portfolio of assets. We've got about close to almost 26, so 25 today, close to be soon to be 26, you know, generated really strong returns and started to build up the ecosystem. And and, and you'll see now there are, you know, there's quite a lot happening in climate in Australia and it's fantastic to see. You know, people had been interested in what we were doing and we'd had a couple of approaches over the years about, you know, how do we invest alongside you, with you and... And it was something that, you know, the CFC explored and looking at, you know, what's the next frontier? How do we how do we really kind of build something here? And this idea of building a new and launching the existing team with the existing track record into a new manager came about. Um, and so earlier this year, we launched Varescent Ventures, and that is 30% owned by the CFC. So we rem- and, the, and the CEO of the CFC remains on our board. So we continue to be really close and work closely together. And we continue to manage that first fund for the CFC. And we're currently raising a second fund that the CFC plans to cornerstone. So um, so really exciting. It's, you know, it's how do we almost be kind of born out of the CFC to have, okay, right, you know, how, how do we then bring, you know, private sector capital into that market? And it's, yeah, and it's, and it's really exciting. And you do have a good track record of attracting private sector capital. So I, I think it's a, is it a sort of a three to one ratio for every dollar that the yeah, and I don't have the latest stats um, to hand, but it is it is along those kinds of lines, and it's been really interesting. I think through the evolution of the five year period to how it you know very much started out as family offices, high net worth predominantly that were investing alongside us, and then it's really evolved to more of the you know broader cross section of, of venture capital investors, um, and also uh, whether they're generalists or specialists kind of coming into that space. So yeah. It's, can you define the envelope of the definition of clean tech for, for the purposes of Varescent? Absolutely. So we see we're very emissions focused. So we really define it as anything that really reduces it, has a meaningful impact on emissions. So either reducing them or avoiding them or enabling, enabling it, you know, so may, may not have a direct impact on that, but it removes a big barrier in order to reduce emissions. And that can be across the whole, the all industries. You know, we look at it in kind of four very broad themes, but clean energy transition, food and agriculture, uh, mobility and smart cities and circular economy and industry. So huge themes, but it, we just find it, you know, we really dive deeply into each of those. This whole transition is a fantastic opportunity. The whole economy is being reformed as we decarbonise. So there are just um, opportunities across the board. There is one area also that we're starting to look at a little bit more, which is new, um, and that is around adaptation or climate resilience. So not a direct emissions impact, but really adapting to the changed climate. 
And I always feel, you know, I kind of say, well, it's great we're seeing opportunities in that space, but it's actually really awful that we're seeing opportunities in that space because it, it is simply, you know, going to be a part of the landscape going forward. Is there a sufficient commercial mindset in the space that you're investing in, that especially being a sort of partly owned government funded body? There's a sort of feeling like, well, just give us some money and if we do some good, fine, but if we don't, oh, well. You know, how, how do yeah. you try and um, calibrate the, the commercial imperative? Yeah, we are very focused on the commercial and, 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 and that was something that we really focused on on day one from coming into the CFC and that was very much around, well, the CFC has a $200 million fund and that's great. That's a lot of money to invest into climate, but it's very little compared to what needs to go into climate. So our real job is to unlock the market again and, and let people know this is an, an investable asset class. So we have always taken that view that we don't do investments that don't have a meaningful impact on climate, but that's a gate really. So we go, is it going to have a meaningful impact on climate? Fantastic. Now, is this an excellent transaction? And we will not do investments that aren't brilliant investments as well. That's been a very key part of, of, how, of our investment philosophy. And it's almost you can only make it an investable asset class by delivering excellent returns. That's the only way you can sort of Absolutely. prove to investors that they should mm -hmm. follow your lead. What's the funnest part of your job? Oh, it's all fun. Um, <laughs> oh, look, I, I've always really enjoyed, um, as I said earlier, meeting entrepreneurs. I think that I kind of get to live vicariously through them, right? Like we're obviously doing a bit more of it now. So, you know, with setting up our own fund and hiring people and all of that stuff, but really they're the people who, you know, walked away from career, you know, from jobs and, and actually kind of gone out and bootstrapped these things. And I think I find that incredibly inspirational. I think people who've had a vision and can see a different future and, you know, there are always 300 reasons you shouldn't do something and the people who can look for those one or two things and how they can make it happen, I think are incredibly, yeah, incredibly inspirational. What's the hardest thing then? <laughs> I am. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I think one of the hardest things is saying no to people and you can think the founder is fantastic and they're so, you know, but they're, we may not think the bit in the market is ever going to be big enough in what they're doing. Or often, you know, what happens in the energy sector is that it's a really big problem, but there's there aren't aligned interests to pay to solve it. Anytime that you have to say, no, either we're not funding it now or a new investment or we're not going to continue to fund it, it's not, it's not the right investment for us. That's Yeah, I think that's really hard. Presumably you find yourself in a situation where people are laudable in their objectives. How important is it that it's globally scalable? If, if something is only relevant to the Australian context, is that something that's scalable enough for you to be interested in it delivering excellent outcomes? I think Australia is very capable and proven to develop these technologies that can scale globally. And almost all climate tech is, you know, scalable globally. Generally, we do need to believe that there is a global market. I mean, I think it's quite different from, like, you know, the US can has such a big market that they may not need to see a global market to generate the returns. But in Australia, we, we generally do. There are always exceptions. But yeah. So how do people connect with you? Do, you know, do, do you get founders contacting you, you know, individually or how do you cultivate pipeline and how do people know that they're the right fit for you? We get people reaching out to each of us individually. We get people reaching out through the website. We've got, you know, we've obviously got these relationships with people. We've been in the market a while. 
we have relationships with the fur companies that we've backed. So we have a fair amount of referrals through companies that we've that we're working with. The CFC have previously backed other managers as well. So and you know really developed pipelines through that as well. So you know we talk to the universities, we talk to the accelerators. So you know we're out there quite a lot. We're actually based in Fishburners in Sydney at the moment as well, which is great. We're really enjoying that. That's really um, how we, you know, how we find opportunities. We also sometimes, and I'd love to do more of this, we just seem to never have time, and I think we have to make time to do this, is we will very much dive into themes when we see deals and, and we will also, it'll then kind of make us dive more deeply into that particular problem. But I'd love to be more proactive around that too, to go, right, here is a massive problem that we need to solve. How do we go about and, and really drill in? And we've done that um, from time to time, but it seems to be one of those things that when everything else gets in the way, you become more reactive. But we would love, we certainly love to be more proactive on that. Where are we at at the moment in terms of climate tech? You talked about, you know, part of your job is making an investable asset class, but in the current environment, there's sort of lots of pressures on valuations, on concerns about the, the sort of macro environment. What's the implication for a climate tech? Great question. And I think that when I look at valuations and I look at, um, you know, what's happening in the broader market, in the financial markets, you know, we are certainly seeing that um, we're certainly seeing that the climate tech companies are still still getting um, funded, um, good climate tech still getting funded. We've got about five companies either recently closing up follow on rounds or about to close and they're all at up rounds. So we're still seeing the valuations go up. We get asked this question a lot around, are you holding it at the right valuation? And we, you know, we're, we're just, we're seeing it continue to go up. You know, these things may have been done at even higher valuations 12 months ago, but they're still getting funded and they're still getting funded at up rounds. I think then there's a the broader kind of macroeconomic and, you know, global instability. And I think that I think it's really interesting to think about how that might play out and the impact that that might have on climate. I think ultimately, you know, what we we see is that just continues to drive demand for energy security and distributed resources and other ways of producing food and and you know all of that. But I think there, you know, there's no doubt that there are there is some short term. I mean, obviously, see it in the energy markets, but there's there is short term instability. We don't see that we're across such a broad range of climate tech. You know, we don't see that that impacts our kind of outlook on those sectors. But I think there's no doubt that there is some short term instability and um, volatility. Are you able to talk about a couple of companies in the portfolio that you think will thrive in this environment of heightened awareness of, of the importance of the solutions? Sure. So there are, and, and, and it's, I always find it hard to talk about just one or two. Um, but there is a company that um, that I'm involved in technology called Novolith Technologies. They're commercialising a technology that extracts lithium from spodumene, so it's hard rock ores. And that's obvious. You know, Australia plays a really key part in that in that market. And the current way that that is done is, you know, the the ore is extracted and and crushed and heated up, and then it's and then it goes through this sulfuric acid, really strong acid that basically pulls everything out of the ore and then you have to kind of process it to try and just, you know, focus on the lithium that's sitting within that. Um, and then you've got these really toxic tailings that you've got to do something with. So Novolith has this technology that is using carbon dioxide. It's using carbonic acid, um, which is, 
water and CO2 um, to directly extract uh, the lithium. So it's highly selective for lithium, pulling the lithium out um, and actually absorbing CO2 in the process. It seems that they're actually able to then store a whole lot of CO2 in that delithiated ores as well. It's a modular process. It's a step change in terms of the cost of producing lithium. Early kind of results that we're seeing are that they're actually able to process otherwise uneconomic ores to process really low concentration of lithium. And then obviously it's got a much lower um, emissions profile in that it's actually absorbing CO2 in the process um, rather than emitting it. That's really interesting. And I think that's, you know, obviously one of the core components for electrification is lithium. And, but how do we actually extract it in a cost effective way? So that one's really fascinating. And I think that's very well positioned to, you know, to address current issues. Um, so one in the energy sector is a company called Hisata. They are commercialising a hydrogen electrolyzer technology. How do you get green hydrogen for a very low cost? Hydrogen is important to decarbonise otherwise really difficult to decarbonise sectors. Heavy vehicles, aviation can play a role in aviation and, and other roles as well. Most electrolyzers top out at about 75% efficiency. And this one is a real step change in that they're generating about 95% efficiency. So that dramatically lowers that cost of hydrogen. So that one's really exciting as well. And there's a lot of discussion about how do you how do you decarbonize the grid and get the kind of baseload power as well? So and, and decarbonizing. So there's a discussion around kind of um, hydrogen for that in, in some geographies as well. Um, but also just kind of a broader de- decarbonisation theme. It sounds like the companies you invest in couldn't be more different to software as a service companies. And by their nature, they're very capital intensive. At what stage do you consider a company investable? You know, because with a, a sort of SaaS company, it could be a little bit more than an idea, but not much more. Whereas presumably these technologies need to have quite a bit of development before you can genuinely know whether they're investable or not. So at what point can you start looking at them? We do look at software as well. And so we do have some software companies that I can talk about in the portfolio. Uh, But absolutely in climate, you know, we're not, we invest in both. When we look at, you know, taking those two examples, there was really strong intellectual property. And they were both relatively early in their in their commercialization, both coming out of universities and both with you know some strong intellectual um, property. In the case of Novalith, they had a patent that had been lodged when we, you know, when we became involved. But really, and and the, the founding team had done um, a lot of work around, well, what does this look like in a practical sense? How could we actually build this out? What what would it um, look like? But really then, you know, they were raising capital to then replicate the work the university had done in their own facility and then scale up from there. So, you know, it was we're very much in that situation then looking at, well, is this really unique intellectual property, whether it's actually patented or not at that point, if it's actually lodged or not? Is there a you know, clear room to operate? Can we see that notwithstanding the capital intensity, we can see a model where you can generate venture returns here? And, and finally, but shouldn't really be finally lacking, is this team capable of continuing to you know, develop best-in-class technology? Um, so that's a very key part of, of what we're looking at. And what sort of support do you provide as an investor? Obviously, there's the capital itself, but what, what else comes with that that helps the company thrive? There's a whole range of different, but I hope that out of even the diligence process, there are some good lessons around kind of thinking about, well, how do I better articulate this proposition? How do I explain it to dumb investors? 
in a way that they know that you know what you're talking about but in a way that they can understand as well. So I think there's all of that. And, and we will often do that kind of technical review as well and engage somebody and get all those lessons and understand, okay, how do we build on that? Um, and then when we're working with them, so very much focused on, you know, we almost always join the board, thinking through, okay, so, you know, we will come in with a, a thesis around, well, what, where do we think this needs to get to? And we will have worked, you know, with the team, with the founding team on that. You know, where do we think this needs to get to in order to generate a really brilliant exit? So what do we need to nail in this invest in this um, capital raise, in this kind of what milestones do we really need to nail here in order to generate a really great next capital raise and a next capital raise in order to kind of get to where we want to? So we'll be very much focused on that and thinking about and just bouncing ideas off, I think, in terms of, well, how do, how do we do that? And then thinking about, well, okay, so how can we can we introduce you to customers? Can we introduce you to investors can we talk to the cfc about what do you need to look like in order to access debt funding down the track let's let's make sure they're across our you know big brother like how do we make sure they're across what you know what you're doing and and each stage you know we work really closely with the cfc team as well so taking the novalith example when we when we looked at it we reached out to the head of resources um, rob wilson in in wa and he was able to give us his thoughts on the technology, the broader lithium market. He was able to introduce us to one of his customers in that space, who then also spoke to us, helped us diligence the opportunity. And now that we're investors, they're talking to that customer as well. So that's it's a really great way of helping these companies, you know, open the doors into, into their customers. You talked about how inspirational you find working with the founders. What are some of the things you've learned from working with founders? You know, what are the, some of the lessons that they've taught you? I think the power of like perseverance, um, certainly, and 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 that kind of um, sheer determination, and and just and also then just getting stuff done. Like I think that kind of the best founders that I've worked with, thinking you know, doing enough and knowing when to do enough analysis on something. And knowing when to just get on with it and you might break a few things along the way and that's that's okay. So I think that and that's a real art, I think, too, because I think, you know, you can you can break too many things. Someone was talking about the balls in the air and not dropping any of the glass ones the other day. And I think it's that kind of analogy. The whole power of I think something that um, you know, having come from a you know an engineering background and then consulting background, I think, you know, something I've then learned about is the the storytelling, you know, I think that storytelling skill that brings everyone along with them, that helps them hire really well, that then, um, you know, helps them raise capital. So it's all of that telling those kind of really clear, concise story. And some of the most impressive founders, I think, are the ones that then kind of just really help you and everyone around them. I guess I see it from the investor point of view, but it's, you know, it's from I see them doing it with their teams and with their customers as well telling this really consistent story about where they're going and how they're getting there. And obviously things change along the way, but ultimately there's this kind of consistency around it. And I think that's a real skill. It's a lot said about this, but humility and being open to feedback. And I think that's a, um, I think that's especially important as an investor, I think to kind of, I think, and I really value that. I pretty much say what I think. And I really appreciate working with people who do the same. <laughs> Very open to feedback. 
I heard someone say, you know, startups are messy for just so long and that, that need for resilience is really strong. Are there any setbacks or failures in, in your life that you can share that, that you've really learned from or that have made you stronger? Maybe not even specific setbacks because I think I feel like there have been so many lessons learned and I think that kind of comes back to this career, you know, this career that I've chosen. You're constantly learning and so you're also constantly making mistakes early in my career, I used to take that very seriously and really take it to heart um, and and found that hard to really step back and think, okay, I've learned that, now what do I do? And and not take it personally. And I think that that's something that I really, um, I really actually think having kids really taught me that, you know, it's like, um, and it's made me way better at what I do. I think just being, you know, able to just, and I still, of course, you know, there are still mistakes that I make that I think, and my, my mother was very good at this, actually saying, well, what can you learn about it? Right. OK, you've learnt it. OK, now just move on. What, what decisions do you make? And that was something that she really you know, tried to drum into us, to my sister and I as we we're growing up. I was interested you talked earlier about that transition over time from a young person who was really, it sounded like attached to that sort of safety of external validation, get high marks, paint inside the lines, to now, you know, you're, you're in a, a highly um, ambiguous environment. There's no right answer in venture really until, you know, miles after you've made the decision. Any tips for how you sort of navigate that transition? Because I think there's a bit, there's a gender element to that. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, I think that, um, you know, how, how did I make that transition? You know, try and have a bit of a philosophy of trying to make myself feel uncomfortable on a regular basis because I think you just have to keep putting yourself out there. You know, when I started out in my career too, I was like, had this thing, I'm going to say something in every meeting, even if it's really dumb, because I just want to say something and I feel like the next meeting then it'll be better and it'll be better and it'll be better. That was a good way for me to kind of really make that transition and just constantly looking at new things and talking to lots of different people because I think, you know, yeah, when you get below the surface, everyone's the same, right? Like no, people might seem really confident and in that ambiguity, but actually everyone's kind of trying to work it out. <laughs> Is there something that people would be surprised to find out about you? Oh, um, I'm not sure. You know, one element, that element of my career where I was, you know, designing biscuits basically with terms of the product development and then, and then work making those biscuits and where a bad day was, it meant that you just ended up covered in chocolate, which wasn't such a bad day in the end. <laughs> wasn't so great for my waistline, but, um, but yeah, so, so may, maybe that. What about people that you really admire that have been positive shapers or influencers or role models for you? I alluded to my mum before and so certainly parents, a hugely important role model in, in anyone, right, like in terms of, you know, setting your values for life and, and how you unconsciously think about lots of things. Um, I think more in a kind of professional sense, someone that I've, you know, over the last few years have certainly admired working in the space I do is Mike Cannon-Brooks. You know, I think somebody who's an entrepreneur has gone out there and created something huge, hugely successful, but then is very aligned to his principles. So he's actually, you know, you know, a lot of people would be happy to have made that money. And, you know, for a long time, I think a lot of very wealthy people in Australia just kind of kept their head down and maybe, in, you know, tried to influence things politically, but didn't actually come out and, and say what they, they thought. So certainly inspirational. What about books, podcasts, other things that enrich your life that you would recommend to others? 
one book that I have really, I think from a, and it's a, such a cliche and a classic, but I find The Seven Habits is just one of those books that I feel like it's something like, so it's something I read about 20 years ago and it is probably the most, you know, referred back to book that I that I have because I feel like it just kind of hits on so many things. Um, and it, So that's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Exactly, yes. Yep. Yes. So that's something, you know, I think that I've, I've certainly found super helpful. I'm a big outdoors person, love, you know, hiking and, and trail running and, and that. And there are a couple of things like into thin air, touching the void. I mean, I love the mountains. Um, and then there's a beautiful book that was written not long ago called The Adventurer's Son. It's a true story about, you know, a father writing about, you know, his adventurous lifestyle and that he put that, you know, instilled that in his children and 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 it's about, you know, what's happened to his son. So it's a really, yeah, beautiful um, adventure book. <laughs> you might need tissues though. I'm just... I was going to say, it feels like I want to cry even just listening to you talk about it. <laughs> You do a lot, you know, as you say, you can never do enough in the job that you've got. And then when you, you know, layer some kids and family and other stuff on top of it, any recommendations for things that help you be productive? I'm a firm believer in the um, notepad and pen. Like actually that's kind of old school thinking and actually, you know, clearly writing down each day and planning and, but I feel like I spend an incredible amount of time trying to coordinate multiple pers- people's diaries. So if anyone has a, if you have it, or if you have a tip on, I know, on one that does that well, that would be amazing. <laughs> no, I've got nothing for you there. But, you know, I'm, that, I'm, scratching my, <laughs> I'm scratching my own itch asking everyone I can to try and work out who squeeze more out of each day. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are thinking about raising capital? Think clearly about your business before, you know, and and think about, you know, what are you looking to raise capital for? How can you best position yourself and the and the company and and who are your best partners? You know, your best um, best funders. Start having conversations. You know, ask around who's good at who are the good investors. You know, who who might be suitable for you. Go to one of the many events. I mean, there are loads of events on that um, where you can meet people online as well as face to face. And then, you know, really listen carefully to what, how the investors are asking questions, where they're going, if you can build some relations, some friendly relationships too, where you can have that, you know, people can be quite open and honest with you about like where some of the challenges of your pitch are. That's the, the most important thing really is about listening and building relationships. Last question, what are you really excited and optimistic about? I'm very optimistic about Australia's ability to play a really meaningful role in the climate transition. So I think, you know, I won't go political, but I'm probably more optimistic now than I was earlier this year. You know, regardless of the party, it was very much, you know, that obviously climate was a really key issue that people voted on. I think that there's, you know, that real momentum. And I think Australia is so well-placed to, and everyone always says this about their own country, I guess, but one thing no one can argue with is we're blessed with, you know, natural resources, you know, be it the minerals that go into electrification or wind and solar and everything that we can do with that. And I think that there's just starting to be more momentum from both the public sector and private sector in terms of how we actually turn that into a long, a sustainable competitive advantage for Australia. So, so I'm, I'm very optimistic around that. Well, it's, it's fantastic to think about a future uh, Australia that are, you know, leaders in things that are really important, that makes a positive contribution to the world. So thank you for being part of that and, and sharing 
um, your story with us today. Thank you, Catherine. My pleasure. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course, combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.